Welcome to the third edition of Priory's podcast, Sporting Highs and Lows. I'm Luke Sutton, and once again, I'm joined by Priory addictions therapist, Pamela Roberts. With professional football said to be dealing with a gambling epidemic, today we are joined by Michael Chopra to talk through his own experiences with gambling. Michael's football career saw him playing for his boyhood club, Newcastle United, along with Sunderland, Cardiff and Ipswich in nearly 400 professional appearances. Whilst things may have been going well for Michael on the pitch, off it, he was facing up to a growing gambling addiction, which ultimately led him to seeking recovery treatment. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hi. Well, a belated Happy New Year to you guys. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I've, I've watched um, some of your interviews recently and, and I, I, I admire how open you've been and, and the impact you'll be having uh, on football will be huge. So it's an amazing, amazing for you to, to be with, uh, with us here. Um, I just wanted to start off really and ask you, you know, what were your first experiences of gambling? How, how did it start for you? And, and, and importantly, how did it feel for you in those early my, days? My, my first experiences were um, I was a, a youth team player at Newcastle. Um, I was earning £70 a week, I think it was at the time, uh, youth team wages. Um, and I remember we all, as, as kids, we all used to meet up at the stadium. Then we used to jump on a minibus, go to the training ground. Uh, clean the boots, showers, whatever, come back to the training, uh, come back to the stadium afterwards. And then we'd go our separate ways. We'd jump on the metro, jump on the bus and head back home. Now, this is probably how it all started. And there was like an amusement near the metro station. um, And there was probably five or six of us that would say, oh, let's go in and put one pound, two pound in a slot machine. I think it was just a case of, killing time really waiting for the metro waiting for the bus to come uh it was about five o'clock so the shops were closed in the city center um so we were just killing time um playing on these machines and i think that's probably where it all started you, you i got hooked onto these flashing lights and and that sort of thing you as a young kid on 70 pound a week if you get the jackpot it's 50 pound and you're thinking from 50 pound you've only You've only used a pound of your money. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's worthwhile. But looking back at it now, I think, why? Do you know what I mean? It's it's one of them things. So answering your question, I think that's probably where it all started or how I first started the the ladder, really. And in those early days, that kind of gave you that buzz, I guess, that, that any... The gambling can give people that kind of buzz of what will happen. Was that how it felt? I think so, yeah. Um... I didn't. I didn't really um, think about it's it's gambling. Do you know what I mean? It was it wasn't that thing. It was just more of a thing of, oh well, I kill time. But one thing leads on to another. Um, people talk about addictions are from childhood and everything. But my my childhood was brilliant. My mum and dad looked after me, treated me well. So I think it was a case of getting the buzz from the gambling. What I was achieving in training and that sort of thing i was a striker i was a goal scorer so when i'm hitting the back of the net the buzz i was getting was phenomenal now for me to try and recapture that buzz off the pitch there's no better feeling at this at the time than your horse winning by a nose and just getting up on the line sort of thing do you know what i mean and when when did you you know when did you start to think it might be a problem and I know that that's a, that that might sound like a really simple question to people, 
But I actually think as a recovering addict, there's quite a few layers to that because you may have known that there was a problem a long time before admitting there was a problem, you know, to anybody. But when when did you first think, do you know what, this isn't normal? I think when I, when I signed for Sunderland in 2008, I think it was, um, I knew it was a problem then. Um, I had the same agent as Alan Shearer. So when I was at Newcastle, Alan would be telling my agent, Michael needs help, he needs this and that. And it was really my agent that told me to go and speak to my mum and dad about it. And I, I broke down in tears because I didn't want my mum and dad to know I had this problem. Um, so, yeah, it, it was probably then that I knew I had the problem. But the problem was with me. I didn't, I didn't want help. Um, and Sunderland were fantastic. Roy Keane was brilliant with me. He was the one that got me the help. Um, probably two thousand and nine, I think it was. I spoke to him. I said I needed, I needed help. Um, and within a week or two weeks, he he was, I was away at at a clinic trying to get help. Um, but I didn't want the help, if you know what I mean. It was, I didn't. I I thought I could stop it myself. I had spoke to Roy about needing help, but I didn't want to stop myself. Um, the Sport and Chance Clinic was, was fully booked. Um, so they sent me to the Capio Nightingale Hospital. Um, now I was staying in the Landmark Hotel, which is right around the corner. So I'd be going to the hospital, doing the, the classes, but I'd be staying in the hotel. I wasn't staying in the clinic, if you know what I mean, in the hospital, which was what all the other um, people who had addictions were, were doing. So... It was it was a case of me going there eight o'clock till five o'clock at night and look it's it's stupid me saying it but I'm honest and I'm an open person as soon as I finished there was a betting shop around the corner and I'd go straight to the betting shop because I didn't want the help I didn't I didn't want to help myself it was a case of the club have sent me there trying to help me but I didn't want to help myself so when you I mean I think that's really interesting because that's kind of you know the the the, the question around when an addict reaches their rock bottom, you know, and, um, and that's so unique to everybody. But did you, that time when you felt like, because you, you recognised that you needed help, but it, was it that you didn't accept that that meant that could be your last bet? Or did you, did you think, I just need to slow this down or, or I need to, or did you just, were you just sort of appeasing everyone and ticking a box and saying, okay, then I can just get back on with what I was doing? I think it was more of a keeping people happy. Um, obviously, telling my mum and dad I had the the addiction. Uh, speaking to Roy Keane, speaking to Sunderland Football Club, uh, speaking to close friends, other players. I think it was just a case of, I'll tick the box, they'll be happy with me, I'm going to a clinic. Um, but what they didn't realise is I wasn't doing it properly. Um, I didn't want to help myself. Um, which, which, looking back now, it's sad because you've got all these professional athletes, managers who are world-class people, uh, a big club in the Premier League, Sunderland, that are reaching out to help me. And they didn't have to do that because they've got to look after 25, 30 other players as well. Now, why should they go out the way and try and help a Michael Chopper, do you know what I mean, when he doesn't want to help himself? So, um, looking back now, I, I've, look, I've been open, I apologise, and it's been thankful that I got the help but I didn't really want to help myself it wasn't really until um, probably 2012 I think it was when I wanted to help myself 
And I just, um, Pamela, I'm just going to bring you into this. I mean, I guess, you know, you've, you've seen that many times where, you know, and, and, and the journey that an addict is on is, is one in which they might not yet be at the place that they're ready to get better, even though they are on some sort of journey. Does that make sense? They've begun a recovery journey, but they've just not begun the bit to get better. Is that something you see a lot? Very familiar. And, and I think family, friends, colleagues are probably noticing something long before the individual and trying to to make some changes, make some suggestions, but also they're kind of following the path, they also excuse it. And that, so I was just wondering if there was anything in particular that people were noticing and trying to point out that you just can't accept, you just, just have to deny. That there is some evidence actually, there's been some research recently that people make seven attempts before they really get to a point where they want to change. And those seven attempts vary, sort of starting with wanting to cut down or um, just change the patterns and all those sort of things. So I, I was just wondering, Michael, if people were saying what they saw and why they thought you had a problem that you just couldn't accept as a problem. Um, look, I think with, with my parents, they probably realised that I had the problem only when um, I was using my wages to bet and then I would be asking my parents to borrow me money to to pay for bills. Now they started to question me, how come a footballer earning this much money is doesn't have any money? Do you know what I mean? So I think that's when they started to think, actually, he does actually have a problem. He needs help. Um, but it it was hard because I I as I was the further on my career, I was earning a lot more money. So the bets were getting bigger, whereas if I was on £70 a week when I started, I was only betting one or two pound. I went from £70, as soon as I turned 17, I was on to 500 and then I was on three and a half thousand. Then I left to go to Cardiff, uh, I was earning six to ten thousand. Then I went to Sunderland, uh, doubled my money. So then it started to become a big problem, um, and that's when people were trying to help me, but. Look, going into the clinics, I was sitting there and I was thinking, what am I doing in this room with all these people? I, I'm a football, and no disrespect to these people, but I was thinking to myself, I'm a football player, I shouldn't be in a room with these type of people, but it was only later on in life that I realised that everybody's the same, we've all got addictions, and I'm no different to them. I'm, I'm in a place, I'm in a, a dark place, and I need to try and get out of um, and even when I was going to GA when I was at Ipswich I was going to GA and I was, I was sitting in the circle and I was thinking so, what am I doing I don't, I don't, I don't want to do this but I had to do it to, to help myself do you know what I mean I, I knew that once you're on the, the ladder you've got to follow step by step and, and, and keep filling in your workbooks and, and that sort of thing and it wasn't really until I started to get a little bit bored of going to GA and I decided to get a sponsor and speak to them on a one-to-one basis rather than going to the meetings because I was training every day with Ipswich and I didn't want to spend one or two hours of my night time going to these meetings. So I just decided to, to reach out and get somebody's number and if I had a problem or I was thinking about a bet, then... I'd ring them up in and have a chat with them. 
Look, what, what you've just said is um, you've basically just said exactly me. I, I, when I turned up at the Priory, I, I thought I was in the wrong place. I was like, you know, and I, I've said it many times, I, I found out it was a 28-day programme and I was like, well, I'm a professional cricketer, so I'll get this done in seven. You know, and I, and I, and I was in, you know, my group, there was priests, lawyers, prostitutes, drug dealers and me. And exactly, and until you're broken down to go, we're all the same, you don't, you don't, you don't hear it. I, I'm interested in, 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 and this is something that we've talked about in previous podcasts, actually. How much do you, and, I, and I'm going to try and explain this correctly, but I, I've been in the dressing room environment. And so, and, I, and this is my biggest concern with professional sport today. And I think gambling is an epidemic, but it's that environment in which, you know, when you do things that are kind of in excess, you know, it could be gambling, it could be drinking, it could be sex, it could be whatever. It's almost celebrated in the dressing room as in, hey, what, you know, that kind of, did you experience that? And was, did you find that as a difficulty because people knew you for loving a bet and they kind of loved you for it? I, I, look, I, I did experience all that. Um, I, I remember on a Saturday, once you finished, you'd do whatever you want over the weekend. You'd come in on a Monday, you'd chat with the players what you got up to. I was in the casino. First thing would say, what did you win? They'd never say, well, how much did you lose? Oh, I won this, this, this. Oh, what, is it? what else did you do? People, It was just a banter thing in the dressing room, do you know what I mean? Everyone having a laugh and, and acknowledging what, what you've been up to. They would never think of, he's got an addiction, we should be trying to help him sort of thing. Um, look, I, I remember being on the team bus, going to a game and... I was playing cards this with Newcastle and two big big name players were, were all playing cards together um, and I wanted to be in that circle so I then decided to play as well and I wasn't on that much money compared to what these, these players were on and I remember in the change room before one of the games and uh, I think it might have been Bobby Robson was saying why do you want to take money from your, from your, your mates? Why do you want to do it? You're going out there and playing 90 minutes you're going to have each other's back on a football pitch but you've just took his hard-earned money. Why Why would you want to do that? Do you think he's going to back you up on the pitch knowing that you've took five, £6,000 off him? So uh, listening to what Bobby was saying then, uh, and looking back now, I realised, yeah, it, it, it was a problem. It was a, When I was growing up in the change rooms and back then, I think probably you know it as well, it, the gambling was a big... It was, it was culture, it was... An English culture thing. Everybody was doing it. It's not so much happening now. I know it doesn't really happen that much now on the team bus and going to games and that sort of thing. Uh, obviously, people still bet and the, the FA and everyone's trying to clamp down on it, but it's impossible. Um, but yeah, it, it is gradually stopping, but you can never stop it. You know what I mean? Until yourself, me, can go in and, and really, um, really speak speak to people so I, I was just wondering Michael you know we, we often talk with gambling addiction that it, eventually it's not about the winning the winning is not even a part of the the whole addiction repertoire it's about the chase and I wondered if that was still working at that time with this kind of changing image as you say it wasn't happening on the bus anymore and did you still have a feeling that it was working for you at that time I, I'm laughing because it got to yeah exactly whatever you're saying there is correct because I was winning bets and I was thinking I don't even have the buzz out of it anymore it's it, 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 I'm not enjoying it but 
It was in my system. It was in my blood to, to keep doing it. Do you know what I mean? And you're right in saying it is the chase. Now, if I had lost £100, I would then try and double up on the next horse to try and win it back. And then once, you, once you're on that, that the slope going down, you're in big trouble. Um, I, I, I was on that and you're in trouble because you think you can, you can get the money back and you can't. Now, it wasn't me. I had to realise. I always believed that whatever I lost, I could always get it back. Now, if I had lost 200,000 in November, December, I believe in January, February, I could get that 200,000 back. I, I always believed that no matter what I bet, I'll be able to get that money back. But it, it wasn't until really when I went to the Sporting Chance Clinic and uh, they started to, to realise that I need to stop and think and cut your losses. You, it's gone. You're not going to get it back. You've got to stop this. You have to start thinking about the future. And, and I had a little boy and everything. And I, I had to think about a little boy and about his safety and me being a professional footballer and looking after him. Um, so, yeah, what it, what you said there is bang on. It's correct. It is the chase. And I, I didn't enjoy winning bets anymore. And it, 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 people, when I say that, people laugh and say, how can you not enjoy winning money? And I think it was because, like you say, you're chasing, them, you're chasing your losses and you, you, you're chasing what you need to get back. I think that's when we might start saying it's tipped into something more chronic, that addiction has taken over and then that's when the big changes have to happen if and when you're ready, yeah. Michael, I was just going to ask, um, when did you have a moment where it, you, you, it, enough, it was enough now, I, I, I need to get better, I, I need help, I don't know what that help is, but I need something. Did you have that moment? I think when I, when I signed for Ipswich um, in 2011 and 12, I think it was, was Roy Keane manager there as well then? No, Roy Keane was trying to sign me the year before. Okay. Um, he left Ipswich. Um, Cardiff didn't want me because of the gambling addiction and, and that sort. Even though I was doing well on the pitch, they didn't want me at the club. And I think that had, was down to one or two of the other players that were trying to get the chairman to get, get rid of me sort of thing because they thought I was a bad apple. So I went to Ipswich and look, Ipswich were absolutely fantastic. Now... Ipswich, I, I believe Ipswich is a proper family club. They they tried to look after the players before what they do on the pitch. Um, and they knew I had a, a debt. Now, they were willing to give me the money to pay my debt off and take it from my wages every month, which they didn't have to do that. Um, they then um, made me self-exclude from every betting shop around the area, um, which then... Once you've done it, in, once I've done it in the local area, it then become a national thing because of um, my reputation and who I was. Um, I remember self excluding myself in Ipswich and trying to get into a betting shop in Newcastle, and they wouldn't let me in because the the, the message had been sent around, which it was good. Do you know what I mean? It was helping me. Um, then Ipswich sent me to Sport and Chance Clinic. Now they told me that I had to stay in there for two weeks and complete the course. Um, so what I was doing is I was doing it Monday to Friday then on a Saturday morning I was jumping in a car going to play the game and going back into the clinic it, 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 it was bizarre how were you training? I mean? were you not training? 
it was hard to keep up the the training in in the clinic. Do you know what I mean? We had a, a, a fitness coach from Nike who was part of the clinic and everything. That was, but you, you you lose your match fitness. You're not training on a on a high intensity basis. It was more of a having a kickabout with your mate sort of thing. Um, so I I remember I am obviously sporting trans clinic is is near um, Portsmouth in Southampton. So I jump in a car on Saturday morning and we were playing Cardiff. And I jump in the car, go to Cardiff City, get there one hour before kickoff. I'm starting. I play. I score a goal. Now Simon Clegg, <laughs> the, the the CEO of Ipswich, is like he rings me up after the game and says, "Oh, this is brilliant. You're fixed. You're fixed. <laughs> We've just won. You've scored now." I said, "Simon, you need to calm down because I'm not fixed. I'm on the ladder to recovery. I'm on the road to getting fixed." And he was. He could see a change in the person I was. Um, it, it was brilliant. Ipswich were great. Now. To occupy me on a on a day off, we used to get Wednesdays off. So to occupy me, he he told me he says I want you to go to the university and enrol in a course. And I was like, I haven't been to to school or anything since I was sixteen. This this, and I was like, reading and writing that's not my thing. So I told him I says I'm I'm reading and writing. I I don't want to do it. It's it boring to me and that sort of thing. He says why don't you not do something practical? So I was like. Okay, so he got me a list of all the the courses, practical courses, and I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a mechanic. I'm gonna um, study being a mechanic. So I was going to college on a on a on a Wednesday and playing with engines and fixing cars and everything. I mean, it was brilliant. And so I was I was play, I was playing on a Saturday, scoring goals on a Saturday, and then going to college with all the students who had been going to the games and everything. <laughs> <laughs> They must have been thinking, what the hell's going on here? But no, look, it was brilliant for me, do you know what I mean? It was it was fantastic. And then Ipswich went out there where obviously Simon Clegg was part of the Great British Olympic team and, and that sort of thing. Um, so he, he decided, and I, I've got to hold my hands up to him for what he's done here. Um, there's an Olympic rower called Steve Williams. Now, Simon employed Steve to come in and take me on a one-to-one basis every day. So in the morning, seven, eight o'clock, we'd go to the training ground, go for a little jog. After training, we'd go to David Lloyd. He'd make sure that I was eating the correct foods and that sort of thing. He was just trying to keep me occupied and, and helping me on, on the pitch and trying to um, keep my focus off the pitch as well, which, which it was fantastic. And they, they didn't have to do that. Steve Williams didn't have to, to come and do that with me as well. And how did you, um, sorry Pamela, I'll um, just jump in quickly. Um, how did you find then when you, you know, you had all that structure around you and I think that this is a big thing for professional sports people. We, we have a lot of structure around us when we play, you know, train now, eat this, wear that, you know, even times of the year, you know what's going on. You sort of roughly know, you know, I guess for a footballer over Christmas and New Year, you know, you're going to be playing a lot of games and you kind of have that in your mind. How, how was it for you then when you, you stopped playing and that structure wasn't there anymore? I think, do you know what? I think it helped. I went to India um, and that really, really made me appreciate life. Um, I'd stay in a five, six star hotel and as soon as you walk out the door, you're seeing underprivileged people lying on the street begging for money and begging for food. And it was a, a real eye-opener for me and it was... Look, I, I'm honest and I admit, when I was playing in the Premier League, I thought I was better than anyone. I thought I was better than the guy next door. I thought I was better than the law. 
uh, the amount of times I've been banned for speeding and that sort of thing, I just thought I, I was untouchable. And it wasn't really until I went to India that really made me open my eyes and, and think about life a lot more. Um, so going from one thing to another and obviously not being... I'm, look, I miss being in the change room with the lads and having the banter and that sort of thing. Um, I do miss it, but I had to find something else to do after football. Now, it helped when I was in India that I was doing the TV work, so I was commentating on all the Champions League games from Europe into India. So so that kind of helped and, and took me away from, from football. It wasn't a case of, you've retired, stop, you've, you're doing nothing like what, what happens to some players. Because I know once that happens to some players, they then be, start drinking, they start gambling because they don't know anything different. So I think on my path, the countries I've been to, obviously it's helped because the, there's a gambling block in, um, in India, in Indonesia, also in, in Amsterdam where I live now. So that's obviously helped as well. But like you say, I've been fortunate enough because I've had, I've still been able to continue on the football cycle. Now I'm doing a project in Indonesia with one of the academies out there. Um, a football project and uh, asking me for to help them to become a big academy in, in Indonesia and then they're trying to bring players into Europe and that's brilliant for me, that's what I want to do, I want to stay involved in football. When we're working with addiction one of the most important things is introducing structure and routine, structure and routine is absolutely key to managing that chaos that comes with addiction so that was so interesting to think about that. I, I was also thinking about the mindset and the resilience and the success that comes with being a sportsman, with being an elite sportsman and how that translates into recovery. And then listening to you say, you know, that kind of ego switch in a way into something purposeful, something that's meaningful is so essential to replace the gap that addiction can leave Actually, I, I, I think that's what you were saying, Michael. So it's interesting to hear. Players used to call me Peter Pan. I'm, I'm the kid that never grew up. And I, do you know what I mean? It was, it was that sort of thing. The, some managers would, would say, oh, he's like Peter Pan. We just have to manage him on a man-to-man basis, man management. And we have to make sure that he's focused because when I was focused on the pitch... I was still scoring goals and, and people people never understood it. They don't understand how I had all these problems off the pitch. How could I recapture what I was doing on a pitch on a regular basis? People were saying it's impossible to do, but I think I was just fully focused. Look, I wanted to be a footballer from the age of five. Now, in my mind, I would never, ever let anything come in the way of that. And I know addictions are addictions, but once I stepped over that white line, I was fully focused on professional football helping my teammates win a game trying to get teams as far up as the division as possible now once that whistle went it, my mind changed it was when's my next bet what's the next horse race it, it, it was strange how how it was like a switch you just turn it on and off it, it was weird and I couldn't quite um, when people asked me I couldn't quite hit the nail on the head why I do that score goals and then straight away as soon as I'm in the change room I'll be checking my phone when the next horse bet or when the next football bet. It was strange. I couldn't quite hit the nail on the head. But like you said, look, I've been lucky. Do you know what I mean? I've I've had people that still trust me because when you're an addict, people lose faith in you. They lose trust in you. 
now I've had people that still trust me and they still want me to do well um, and I'm thankful for, for them people and for people like that reaching out to me and wanting to help me as well and like you said you've got to you've got to continue on the path and I'm on that path and hopefully one thing after another leads on to the next big thing for me yeah I mean I I think um, what you've said that you're hearing your experience at Ipswich is is amazing I and I think one of the things I always try and tell people with professional sport and addiction is often a lot of um, responsibility is put on you know unions the PFA in my work my case the PCA sporting chance but I think there should be more responsibility on clubs to go even if because I think the the temptation is well if he's playing well on the field leave him you know that's just the way he lives his life and I'm always saying to people, but he's ruining his life. You're just using him. And then when you're done with him, you spit him out and he goes on to ruin his life. And I think clubs, and it's, it's warming to hear that, that experience you had with Ipswich. I've, I've always said to people that clubs treat players like a piece of meat. Now, if you're not doing well, let's go and bring someone else in. Because there's that much money now involved in football that if you're not doing well, see you later, we'll bring someone else in. And in a way, it's wrong because clubs are there to help players. They have to help players. The PFA are fantastic. They they help the players um, as much as possible. Um, now, what I don't understand is you have the FA that have tried to cut out gambling w- with the players, told them they're not allowed to bet on any football around the world and that sort of thing. What, what's to say a player can't go to his mate and say, put me this bet on? So you, you can't stop that. And then I look at it, you look at the Premier League, you look at the shirt sponsors in the Premier League, I think over 50% of shirt sponsors are all gambling companies. I was watching the, the Newcastle game uh, the other night against Arsenal and the half-time. What's the next advert after after half-time? Bet365 about gambling. Now, why can't the Premier League, if they want to try and help players, because, look, they're, they're, they're sports people, they're playing in their league, if they want to help these players... Why can't they not cut out all these gambling ads? Why is it that they they have to show all these ads? I know it's big money for them, but just cut it out. Help the players. The players have got to come first. They're the ones that are playing in your league. Mm. I, well, it's, it, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I remember years ago, Joey Barton, do you remember he, he got pulled up for betting on games? And he wrote an article, didn't he? And, and obviously Joey's... A polarizing kind of character. Some people love him, some people hate him. And I remember when he wrote the, I think it was in a newspaper where he sort of put his hands up and was like, look, I, yeah, I got it wrong. But he basically made that point. He was like, but look at the environment. I'm a gambling addict that I live in. And I remember at the time thinking, do you know what? He's right. It's, it's like, it's like a sort of alcoholic and, 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 you know, someone putting a beer in front of them the whole time and going, come on, you need to, you need to be all right with this. And, and I remember he made the point and actually there was like, it's 50-50. Some people were like, oh, Joe's just making an excuse. And I remember thinking anyone who knows addiction will know this is a fair point. Uh, Pamela, what do you think about that? The, these kind of triggers that have constantly put in front of footballers. Well, I was just thinking, as a great fan of Mark Lewis, who talks about the now appeal of the brain and how this the cues and triggers actually will override all reason, decision-making and judgment. They'll be so powerful for that the way the brain changes and learns that cues mean use. And so we have to 
unlearn that we have to rewire that and it takes time so if you're being exposed all the time to these really strong messages it's really problematic it's it's not helping the addict and i i don't know if it's appropriate to us but i was just thinking so how do we get these people to listen how do we get that family appeal that ipswich offered you michael there's probably a big big question that's too big to i don't know because there's that much money involved in the premier league so it's a hard one now I think I think that people like myself have to go in and educate the 14, 15, 16-year-olds of this generation now because they're going to be the next generation that are going to be playing in in the first team in three, four, five years' time. Now, if you educate them so young, then their brain won't automatically think about the gambling thing. And right, you're right in saying that. Now, I was going in a changing room and... You'd shake hands with the player saying, well done. And the first thing you would see is the, the betting spots on the shirt. So you're looking in his eyes, but you can also see his shirt. And you're right, your brain changes. And that's probably why I was thinking, when's my next bet? Because I'm going to the change room and the, the shirt sponsors are, are betting companies. But I look, I, I don't think it will change because there's that much money involved in these betting companies, what they give the Premier League and give the clubs for sponsoring the shirts. But I think it's more of a case that um, people are being uh, the awareness, and you've got to educate the. There's no point educating. You can help them, the the players that are there now, and the twenty five, twenty six year olds. But yeah, you can help them and try and get them to change. But I think you need to go right down to the grassroots level, and really help the the young kids, the the fifteen, sixteen year olds that are coming into the game. Mm. I mean, I I think it's a it's a highly complex question. Um, and I think I, my, my answer to it would be to say, you know, we're, we're talking about sums of money. It's not millions, it's tens of millions. And actually, it might even be hundreds of millions. It's, it's, it's huge money. And what I would love to see is that organisations make a commitment to pay a percentage of that money towards um, helping and educating young players and, and and literally say there's a correlation between how much we're making on on this and how much goes back to helping people and it's a it's a it's there in black and white and I think because it's you know that football is is just like any other business it is about money and in football it's the biggest money in sport so with that is going to come lots and lots of different pressures some of which um, might be um, you know, we might be to say, look, we don't want any gambling going on. A gambling advertising might be too big a step. But I'd love to see a, a commitment from to say, listen, if we make 100 million, we commit that, you know, 10 percent of that 10 million will go towards educational programs. If I could just add to that, I think there is, as, as you're saying, there's a, an educational basis. If we're working with someone with addiction, we're also working with the family. Sometimes we're working with employers. And so it becomes a systemic approach rather than just one person having to make a change. And I, I also feel that there could be education before that, before the problem takes place. So if we were edu- educating organisations, at least we're developing that systemic, that family appeal. Of course, you're going to need sponsorship money. All those things have to exist for the industry to, to keep turning, but also with understanding that some people need a little bit of extra support. So uh, it would be lovely, wouldn't it, if we could go in and do that? <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. Michael, I just want to ask you, as, as we sort of come to an end, really, what, what, would, what, would you, 
What would you say to players out there at the moment? You know who and 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 I'm sure you and I both think my experience is from cricket, and I think gambling's the biggest problem amongst professional cricketers out of everything because it's done silently now, just on a phone at the back of the bus. There's no longer big card games; you can just fiddle around on their phone and they're gambling, and nobody knows. But what would be your message to guys out there who who might be um, might be suffering or might be developing a problem that they're slightly aware of? I, I just think, tell them? look, you've got to you've got to look at the bigger picture. Um, now, there's only one winner, and the winner is the the betting companies. Um, I realised that, and for all these young people that are going through what myself and people you know and yourself what the addictions and addiction to addiction it's hard to to stop but don't hide the fact that you can help yourself because you can't you need other people to help you and you need to reach out to people you need to speak to people and don't be afraid because we're, we're sports stars we're we're elite athletes and we just think that we've got to turn a blind eye to it because the public will think bad of you now i realized that the public didn't think bad of me. The public, I actually got more attention by coming out and being open about it than trying to hide it. I was getting more abuse by trying to hide it and saying I'm an addict and I'm this, I'm that, and that. But when I actually come clean about it, people were actually thinking, oh, actually, he's he's got a he's got a problem. He needs help. Um. So yeah, as young kids coming through, it's tough. But you've got to you've got to reach out. You've got to open up to people. And I know I've I've already since the last month. Some players have already come to me on Instagram and Twitter asking, um, saying they've read my story and asking me to help them and this sort of thing. It's brilliant. It's, I'm I'm happy that I'm there for somebody that needs to somebody to talk to and and give my experience because it's only a little. They might take a little bit from what I've spoke about and they might put it into their experience and it might make them change. And I just hope that one day that it does all come to an end. I really, I really do because it, it, it's such a, a bad addiction, a gambling addiction because you don't see it in your face. It doesn't change in your body, but deep down mentally in your head, it, it, it kills you. It, it really drains you. Now, it's not like a, an alcohol addiction where you can see it in your eyes and you can see it in your body. So people don't know that you've got a gambling addiction because you can hide it. And that's the worst thing about it. So for all these young people and um, in the public and, and sports people don't be afraid to, to reach out and, and ask for help because people are there to help you that's amazing look thanks so much Michael um, we you know I, you, you speak so openly and so eloquently about it and I and I think um, you know that you and I it sounds like feel the same way that we kind of hold a responsibility in some ways that the more that people like yourself yourself and myself talk out the more there is a possibility that we can help others reach out and educate others and just generally make for a better environment around professional sport but but just a massive thank you for coming on today no thank you for having me on i loved it do you know what i want to i want to try and help people do you know what i mean i want to i want to try and give them the future that they deserve they don't deserve to be in an all-time low and hitting rock bottom it's not nice so if i can try and help them before they get to that point then I've achieved what I want to achieve as well amazing okay well we're going to have to wrap that up um, I hope it's been helpful for our listeners um, please reach out for help if you think you need professional support the priory contact details can be found in the podcast overview or visit their website um, Pamela as always thank you so much thank you 
And Michael, just thank you again. Thank you. Uh, Okay, until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye.